Hello, Nephew community, and welcome to the Hot Topics in Nephrology podcast. My name is Andrea Mohindra. I am a clinical and scientific liaison with Otsuka, and I will be serving as your host for today's podcast. I'm very excited to be here today with Dr. Shivam Joshi to share his expertise in different dietary patterns in chronic kidney disease. We'll be focusing specifically on a paper that Dr. Joshi and colleagues published just a few months ago, March 2023, in the American Journal of Kidney Diseases, titled Risks and Benefits of Different Dietary Patterns in CKD. It is my pleasure to introduce Dr. Joshi. He is an adjunct clinical assistant professor of medicine at the NYU Grossman School of Medicine. He received his BS from Duke University and his MD from the University of Miami. He completed his residency at Jackson Memorial Hospital, University of Miami, and his nephrology fellowship at the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Joshi has been featured in the New York Times, CNN, and the Wall Street Journal. He has a research interest in plant-based diets and kidney disease, which is what brings us here today. He has authored or co-authored over 50 scientific articles. He speaks frequently on this subject to audiences worldwide and is the youngest nephrologist to receive the highest award in renal nutrition, the National Kidney Foundation's Joel D. Koppel Award. Welcome, Dr. Joshi. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. And I love talking about diet and kidney disease. So this will be a fun uh, discussion. I agree. Um, so let's start out by talking about the predominant diet in the U.S., the Western diet. So our modern Western diet that's filled with animal-based proteins, processed foods, lots of sugar. Could you recap for the audience the impact of this diet in chronic kidney disease patients? Yeah, so this diet has a lot of things that we... Um, would, would not normally eat. It is high in animal protein. It is high in sugar. It is high in processed carbohydrates. It is high in processed food. So as you can imagine, eating these foods is not good for health. And if you have kidney problems, it's also not good for the kidney. So we can take it one by one. So for example, Animal protein, we eat a lot of animal protein. 69% uh, of the protein we eat in our diet comes from animal protein. About 42% is from meat with another 20% coming from dairy. This comes out to a whopping 274 pounds of meat and 667 pounds of dairy per year per person. And that is an enormous amount of animal protein. And all this animal protein is problematic for the kidneys because it can worsen uh, some of the complications of kidney disease, like metabolic acidosis, hyperphosphatemia. It can affect the microbiome, which in turn has effects on kidney function, and it can contribute to the accumulation of uremic toxins. And these toxins that come from animal protein can lead to oxidative stress, inflammation, loss of kidney function, and not to mention all that animal protein also increases the risk of developing kidney disease like diabetes, obesity, and high blood pressure. So there's a lot of potential damage from the kidney uh, uh, to the kidney for, from animal protein. Changing gears, we also eat a lot of sugary 
um, substances. We eat a lot of sugar. We eat about 60 pounds of sugar each year and all the sugar and the processed carbohydrates that come with it, like white flour, are big contributors to diabetes, obesity, and hypertension. Um, if you, uh, most of us don't eat sugar uh, alone. It's often paired with uh, some uh, processed carbohydrates, some refined carbohydrates, uh, like a cookie or cake or a muffin. So uh, all that is uh, uh, without fibers, without nutrients, and that's problematic. And there was this meta-analysis almost a decade ago that showed that um, uh, when looking at sugar sweetened soda, uh, 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 that there was an association with chronic kidney disease, but not with artificially sweetened uh, soda. Uh, uh, but we know that for sugar and refined carbohydrates that these things are problematic uh, for diabetes and obesity and high blood pressure. Uh, artificial sweeteners are uh, controversial. Uh, they, uh, many people say uh, that they're okay. A lot of studies have uh, not found associations, but in one meta-analysis, there was an association between artificially sweetened beverages and obesity. And this, and obesity is a direct and indirect risk factor for kidney disease. So for soda, it's probably best to stay away from them regardless of how it's sweetened, uh, whether it's with sugar or artificially. Uh, 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 and uh, probably best to just drink water. The last thing I'll touch on is ultra-processed ultra foods. Ultra-processed foods are really common in the diet now and are being studied extensively for their risk for health problems, obesity, diabetes. And what it means is that is the, what, what, what ultra-processed foods uh, mean or what they mean uh, is that they are foods that would not be found in the natural environment. These are foods that, for example, a caveman would not recognize as food. So for example, a uh, corn is uh, recognizable to whole food. Uh, healthy, but the problem is that we often consume corn in a processed form. Uh, corn on the cob is unprocessed, but corn flour is processed. And then corn chips would be ultra processed. Uh, there's a variety of examples that people give, but that's just one example. So it's something that you would not immediately identify um, or would be able to identify as to how it was made or um, if someone didn't explain it to you. These foods are really cheap. They're highly addictive. Uh, they return, uh, uh, they generate great profits for companies, uh, but unfortunately they're bad for human health. And these are all the foods that you would find in a gas station, for example, but are not uh, healthy foods. Um, so that's the problem and we're just eating too much of it. And there's two studies that have shown that these foods are associated with an increased risk of chronic kidney disease. Uh, um, and the, the reason for that probably is related to that we're not eating the foods that we should be eating and that these foods are devoid of fiber and nutrients. So uh, they're just uh, uh, delivering calories in uh, hyperpalatable quantities that leads to obesity and diabetes and high blood pressure. So all of these things are problematic. And we, we touched on these things in our article and uh, I gave people some options on how to um, uh, be healthier. Yeah, I mean, 
it's really impactful when you hear hear those those staggering numbers in in pounds, like our consumption of meat and dairy and and sugar, and it really puts into perspective, um, you know, the the impact of that that Western diet. So. I think with that in mind, let's maybe change gears and talk about some diet options that might be a better fit for specifically our CKD patients. Maybe we can start out by talking about carbohydrates. I know low-carb diets can help address some of the underlying issues that we talked about, obesity and diabetes, but is there proven benefit to a low-carb diet in CKD patients? Yeah, that's a, that's, that's a good question. Uh, I used to be um, more of the approach that low carb diets were potentially dangerous, but I've come around over the years to understand that some people actually may benefit from low carb diets or they, um, uh, um, actually, or that, th that may be the best option for them. Uh, low carb diets, uh, have their pitfalls, which I've, uh, discussed, uh, before and, uh, am known to, to, uh, bring them up, but, uh, I, I think that for some people, low-carb diets can be helpful when uh, done in certain situations. So for example, uh, some patients with obesity and diabetes may find benefit with them, especially if they failed other diets. Um, I don't recommend low-carb diets as first line, but as a last line option for those who haven't had success, success with other diets, and if they do do low-carb, I recommend them to do plant versions of it to avoid the harms that come with animal fat and animal protein. In some studies, low-carb diets have been shown to increase renal function slightly, and, the, and this may appear to those that uh, um, are not familiar with renal physiology as an improvement in kidney function, but uh, to uh, others, uh, including myself, this looks like hyperfiltration that can occur with eating more protein which happens in the setting of reducing carbohydrates. You have to get your calories in from some way. So if you're cutting back on carbs, generally most folks eat more uh, fat and protein and that protein can cause hyperfiltration and that can actually hasten the decline of kidney function over time. There is one observational study showing an increased risk of CKD with low carb diets. However, uh, at least two meta-analyses of randomized control uh, studies have not shown uh, um, any change in kidney function, and these studies have lasted up to two years in duration. So overall, we think that there is no immediate or medium-term harm with these uh, low-carb diets in terms of kidney function, but the concern is with the long-term, uh, which we don't know. And then the other concern is what are the other effects of these low-carb diets in patients with chronic kidney disease uh, besides um, just the kidney function, for example, uh, low-carb diets that are high in animal protein can worsen metabolic acidosis, and hyperphosphatemia, things like that, which are not so good. Um, and uh, not to mention they can worsen high blood pressure or uh, contribute to obesity, uh, um, especially if people are eating um, calorically dense foods. So there are some concerns uh, uh, with these diets. So with any diet, I recommend uh, patients see a dietitian to get that additional guidance so that they don't um, uh, fall into uh, any problems. I love that advice. Great info. And so when we say low carb, it can be maybe like a general term. So maybe for the listeners, 
for this discussion of low carb, what percentage of total energy from carbohydrates are we talking about? And so, and how does that really fit within the Kadoki guidelines? Yeah, so so that's a good question. So the Kadoki guidelines don't explicitly state carbohydrate recommendations. They imply it for patients with diabetes and CKD with a slightly higher protein recommendation. But I actually find it uh, counterintuitive or uh, problematic given that higher glucose levels and higher protein levels in the blood have been shown to cause hyperfiltration in patients with diabetes and CKD. And hyperfiltration is that phenomenon where the kidneys kind of go into overdrive and that hyperfiltration is thought to be the process with which uh, kidney function declines over time in many of our patients that have diabetes. So this logic for higher protein uh, comes from uh, the concern with being protein deficient or having protein energy wasting in our patients with diabetes and to reduce the amount of hyperglycemia that comes with carbohydrate consumption. But I think that's kind of uh, implying that all carbohydrates are unhealthy and that's not um, totally true. You can have healthy carbs, for example, an apple is very different from apple pie. Uh, the protein recommendations in the Keto Key guidelines for patients with diabetes CKD is between 0.6 to 0.8 grams per kilogram per day but the protein recommendation is lower for those without diabetes and goes down to slightly to 0.55 to 0.60 grams per kilogram per day. And then they kind of leave the rest of the macronutrient composition, meaning the carbohydrate and fat content up to the patient and the provider. But the two options are uh, carbohydrates and fats after you achieve those protein uh, targets. And if you're doing a low carb diet, then, uh, then the remainder of macronutrients have to come from fat. And if you're uh, doing a low-fat diet, then the remainder of the car uh, macronutrient calories come from uh, carbohydrates. Uh, and if you're not doing either of those diets, you can have any range in between. I think a better way to look at this is to look at carb quality. And that's kind of going back to what I was saying about apples versus apple pie. An apple is much healthier for you than an apple pie. And uh, uh, the Kadoki guidelines actually recommend in the, their 2020 guidelines for patients to eat a individualized diet that's high in vegetables, fruits, whole grains, fiber, and they explicitly mention fiber, uh, legumes, plant-based proteins, unsaturated fats, and nuts, and lower in processed meats, refined carbohydrates, and sweetened beverages. So the Kadoki guidelines are starting to move in this direction that many people in the nutrition community are already embracing, which is less about the macronutrient percentage and more about food quality. And I think that's kind of what matters most is at the end of the days, are the foods that people are, uh, are the foods that people are eating? Are they healthy? Great point. Thanks for detailing that for us. So if we take low carb diet at its extreme, there's a lot of buzz around a ketogenic diet. So, so what defines a ketogenic diet and where does the research lie in regard to chronic kidney disease and even more specifically polycystic kidney disease? Yeah, that's a great question. There is a lot of buzz around the ketogenic diet in general, just because it's the latest diet fad, a major fad to come along, and it comes along in the wake of other low-carb 
uh, diets over the years like Atkins and uh, the ketogenic diet is the, the latest variation. And uh, the ketogenic diet has a lot of momentum. It uh, can be helpful to some people uh, that have failed other diets, as I mentioned earlier, uh, but it does come uh, with some pitfalls. In general, a ketogenic diet is a very low carbohydrate diet. It's not a low carb diet, it's a very low carb diet. And uh, it's hard to appreciate how low uh, the carbohydrate content of this diet is uh, without giving specific examples. So for example, they limit the amount of carbohydrates to less than 20 to 50 grams of carbohydrates per day. And this amounts to less than five to 10% of calories per day. And for perspective, 20 grams of carbohydrates is equal to a fraction of an apple or banana. It comes out to about three quarters of an apple or a banana or 1.4 slices of whole wheat bread for the whole day. 50 grams of carbohydrates is about two medium apples or two medium bananas or three and a half slices of whole wheat bread. So your, your, your total carbohydrate content has to be less than that and you can't have carbohydrates from other sources. So this is just an example. And obviously um, people uh, may not eat uh, two medium apples at once. They may spread out and have a fraction of an apple and then have a little bit of a banana or do something. So at the end of the day that they're trying to keep the carbohydrates within this uh, under this limit, but it can be difficult to do this because as you can see with such a low uh, amount of carbohydrates allowed, it, it's very easy to overshoot it and not be in ketosis. And that's actually been the issue uh, in many of the studies that study the ketogenic diet. The remainder of the calories in the ketogenic diet come from fat, which constitute about 60 to 75% of calories uh, in the diet. And then the rest come from protein, 20 to 35%. If you eat too much protein, uh, you can uh, uh, um, prevent ketosis uh, from happening. So that this is why the diet is not considered to be a high protein diet, but, uh, but they uh, uh, don't want you to not eat protein at all. And by eating a high fat diet and the ketogenic diet, the body uses fat, primarily dietary fat for energy. But the idea is that if the body's using fat, it will start to use uh, body fat as well. And through the process of using fat for energy, it uh, uh, produces ketones. And that's where ketosis come from and the name of the diet, a ketogenic diet. And these are small molecules that can be used for energy by the brain, heart, and muscle. Uh, this diet has had a lot of buzz for uh, diabetes and obesity. And uh, for some people it can be very beneficial, but for others, it can be difficult to adhere to the diet and, and studies have, have not shown equivocally uh, or unequivocally that these diets are superior to other diets uh, by a wide margin. And what happens is that over time, uh, these diets kind of approach each other um, uh, in, in terms of uh, results. As for polycystic kidney disease, uh, there's a lot of buzz around this diet uh, because early studies, initial studies, experimental studies with animals and uh, in the lab have shown uh, progress in uh, treating uh, the growth of cysts and even reducing uh, the number of cysts uh, that are present um, uh, in, uh, in animals with uh, polycystic kidney disease. Uh, the, the studies are 
pretty impressive for those in the medical field. It's uh, worth pulling up some of these studies to look at uh, the results. So because of these studies, uh, people are uh, very interested. Um, and uh, not only that, polycystic kidney disease is this hereditary condition that results in the hundreds, hundreds of cysts uh, in the kidney and that grow and destroy the kidney over time. And what happens is that by the age of 50, 60, 70, 80, uh, many people are on dialysis, um, especially those with the aggressive form of polycystic kidney disease. And there really is no great treatment to cure or uh, stop this process. So um, with the uh, initial studies from the ketogenic diet, people are very excited that uh, there could be something that people can do just with diet to help turn this around. And now this has not been proven in the studies that um, in humans are ongoing as we speak, uh, but uh, people have a lot of hope. And uh, uh, these studies, uh, the human studies that have been published assured that there have been uh, short, small short-term trials uh, without uh, a control arm. Uh, and those studies have shown favorable results in regards to weight and blood pressure and blood sugar and uh, some increases in kidney function. And uh, again, the, those increases in kidney function, I think, are related to the protein, but the improvements in weight and blood sugar are all favorable. Uh, but the big question is, will this slow down the progression or reverse the uh, progression of, uh, of these cysts in patients with polycystic kidney disease? And that question is still unanswered. Uh, because of the promising results of the early studies, I do mention this information to my patients with polycystic kidney disease uh, to, to let them make an informed decision on their own. And for those that do choose to adopt it or go on, I do recommend doing a plant-based version of it to avoid some of the pitfalls that happen with the ketogenic diet. Those pitfalls namely are related to the uh, animal protein involved or the animal fats involved in the ketogenic diet, which can contribute to the formation of kidney stones, worsening metabolic acidosis, high cholesterol levels, uh, uh, other issues like uh, changes in the microbiome from the lack of fiber. So uh, for anyone adopting it, I recommend a plant-based version of the ketogenic diet. I also recommend seeing a registered dietitian, as, as I mentioned earlier, as a diet, as not as any diet can be difficult, but especially the ketogenic diet, it, it um, can be difficult to figure out the uh, how many carbs are needed and uh, uh, or what the limit is to avoid uh, uh, not being in ketosis. Great info, Dr. Joshi. I think um, that was a great in-depth discussion of low-carb diets and definitely be staying tuned for the research as it comes out um, regarding the ketogenic diet. Um, I think we focused on what to eat and what not to eat. Uh, and let's maybe transition and talk about when to eat. So in your paper, you mentioned what it means to intermittent fast. And maybe you could detail that and what studies show about the effects of intermittent fasting and CKD. Yeah, so I was surprised by the lack of literature in this area. I thought for as popular as intermittent fasting is that there would be more available evidence for people with kidney disease. And actually there isn't a whole lot of research in this area and whatever research that does exist, it comes from those who are doing religious fasting for Ramadan. 
which is the Muslim holiday. And uh, those studies are actually mixed. They show positive results, negative results, and then no, no change in uh, outcomes and outcomes vary from study to study. And I think this is related to when Ramadan occurs. So this is an interesting um, thing is that Ramadan occurs every 10, uh, occurs 10 to 12 days earlier each year. So the timing of Ramadan is, um, is different every year and it can happen uh, in some years during the winter, it can happen some years in the spring, some years in the fall. And I think if you're fasting without food or water or medications, and if it's really hot outside in the summer, this can be problematic for some patients and cause dehydration, um, excess uh, water losses, and that can lead to uh, uh, AKI, acute kidney injury. And I think this is why some of the results are, uh, why a lot of the results are mixed uh, is because uh, the fasting is occurring at different times. So it's hard to compare apples to apples. That being said, um, there actually is an expert committee on what should be done uh, during Ramadan. And that expert committee recommended that anyone with kidney disease should stay hydrated and take their medications for anyone listening and that it applies to them. Um, this is what this uh, expert committee has recommended. Uh, regardless, anyone uh, doing intermittent fasting uh, should not be skipping water or medications as these are really important for health. But uh, intermittent fasting does have a lot of benefits that we've seen in the, the general health literature, has improvements in weight, blood pressure, blood sugar, cholesterol, uh, improvements in inflammation. There's a lot of health benefits that come from the reduction in calories and then also uh, purported benefits from the production in ketones that occurs with intermittent fasting. And then uh, as, as far as it goes for chronic kidney disease, uh, like I said, there isn't a whole lot, but we hope that uh, more research comes out in the future to kind of clarify this um, uh, so we have some better answers. Thanks. And those are great tips for our intermittent fasting patients, for sure. Um, and so finally, we get to a topic I know is near and dear to your heart, and that is plant-based diets. For our listeners that have been nephew members for some time, you know we have recorded some great plant-based diet content with Dr. Joshi in the past. If you are listening in and you're new to nephew, I encourage you to go take a look at the archive webinars, some of which include hot topics in polycystic kidney disease nutrition and also plant-based diets for the management of hypertension and CKD, just to name a few. Um, Dr. Joshi, since we strive to have the most up-to-date research on NEPHEW, besides your contribution to the newest literature that we reviewed today, can you update our listeners to some of the newer studies out there that you've um, found interesting yourself? Yeah, so there was, I just uh, learned about a study that came out uh, pretty recently, and this was a study that uh, was done by Melanie Betts and an assistant out of the University of Chicago that was looking at awareness of plant-based diets in CKD, and this is kind of interesting because when I first joined this field and started looking into it, there really wasn't a whole lot that had been published and uh, people were kind of uh, 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 hesitant to say um, that plant-based diets could even be done in chronic kidney disease. And now fast forward, not even five years later, we're getting studies about awareness where uh, are you aware that these diets can be beneficial for chronic kidney And what they found was that 58% of patients were aware that plant-based diet could improve chronic kidney disease, which is an astounding number when considering that no one was talking about this a few years ago. 
and at least 45% were familiar with the diet. And that's really exciting and suggests that people are getting, uh, are becoming aware word is getting out there and people hopefully will not continue eating the standard American diet, which is incredibly uh, unhealthy and likely the cause of many people's kidney disease. For sure. So that's certainly exciting numbers to hear. Um, maybe some of the people that are hesitant, because um, maybe there's some some concerns, such as um, centered around potassium is one for sure that's that's come up in the past. Um, in your paper, you mentioned new data on this topic of potassium um, in plant-based diets. Could you um, let the listeners know about, um, what do you know about consumption of dietary potassium? Yeah, so we are now moving in the direction of, of uh, the same direction as dietary phosphorus, where we think that the amount of, uh, of potassium is absorbed in a, a less than 100% an amount that is subtotal. So we think that, that there's a bioavailability component to potassium, just as there is for dietary phosphorus. So for example, we think that about two-thirds of dietary potassium from plant foods is absorbed with only... Um, uh, with the other third, one third being excreted with bowel movements um, or not being absorbed. So we used to tell our patients not to eat fresh fruits and vegetables because of potassium content, but now we're swinging the other way and we're encouraging them to eat these foods because they have so many health benefits. And I always make this caveat because there's always differences in variations and uh, differences in responses to uh, because uh, medicine can be so complex. So if, if anyone listening is making the change or your practitioner, just make sure that uh, uh, if you are as a patient uh, are being supervised and a physician dietitian know, and that if you are a physician or dietitian, just to provide that extra supervision or caution when making these changes, because there are some people who can develop hyperkalemia just regardless of dietary change. And then also certain foods which we've uh, discussed in prior papers like juices or sauces or dried fruit can be problematic because they are large amounts of potassium uh, being consumed over a short period of time. Uh, but uh, so we, but the, the main thing is that we used to say, no, you can't eat these foods. And now we're saying for the most part, you can eat these foods and uh, most people do just fine. That's great. And that's exciting for those patients. Um... So your paper details one specific type of plant-based diet, which is the Mediterranean diet. Can you tell us what studies have found in patients that adopt the Mediterranean diet? Yeah. So the Mediterranean diet is a really healthy diet that most listeners are probably familiar with. This diet gets high marks year after year in the rankings. It features a lot of healthy plants, olive oil, and of course, wine. And what we found is that there was a study, a meta-analysis that, had, that showed a greater adherence to the diet was associated with a lower odds of developing chronic kidney disease, which is really impressive that, uh, that uh, eating uh, healthily will reduce your risk. And we've seen that in other studies, but there was a meta-analysis showing this. The other thing that was really impressive that we found was that there's a study showing that eating a Mediterranean diet was shown to actually slow the declining kidney function over five years. It was a randomized control trial in the study showed that those eating Mediterranean diet have a, had a slower decline in their kidney function. And uh, looking at some other studies, uh, when people have tried to look at what is the beneficial component of the Mediterranean diet, is it the wine, is it the olive oil, is it the healthy foods being consumed, what 
uh, people have found is that the, the biggest associations with benefit are actually with eating the plant food components. So again, um, eating healthy plants uh, uh, time and time again has a lot of benefits. Recurring theme, <laughs> plants are good. Um, so I wanna to touch on one last very important topic uh, and that is food insecurity that you mentioned in your paper. It's unfortunate that so many people in the US don't have adequate access to nutritional and healthy foods. Are there any insights you can share with us about this topic? Yeah, so this is a big problem. Uh, unfortunately, we didn't have any groundbreaking discoveries on this issue, but we definitely discussed it and brought it up because it's something that we all need to be aware of and need to collectively address. And uh, it's made worse by perverse incentives on the federal level that subsidize a lot of the unhealthy and processed foods. There's a lot of benefits um, at various stages in production of these unhealthy foods. Uh, but for those who are um, out there and ha have difficulty buying these healthy foods, uh, some of the suggestions uh, uh, that I give to my patients regularly is to buy healthy foods in bulk at a discount retailer. There's these uh, stores that sell things in, uh, in bulk and you can get things at a lower price. And I also buy, recommend buying unprocessed uh, whole grains like uh, brown rice uh, in a dry form. And you, know, you can buy a 10 pound bag and that can go a long way. As for vegetables, I recommend buying them frozen. Uh, you can um, buy them uh, perhaps a little bit cheaper than the fresh uh, form and you can also save them. You don't have to worry about it uh, uh, spoiling you know, after a few days in the fridge or outside. So frozen vegetables are convenient and uh, relatively affordable. And then also fresh fruit, uh, what I can rec what I recommend is buying what is affordable or on sale. Uh, depends on the seasonal uh, variety and what's available. But uh, sometimes you can get uh, fruit that's a little bit cheaper. For example, bananas and apples tend to be on the cheaper side compared to your berries. But sometimes berries go on sale. So I'd recommend just uh, shopping around and trying to find uh, what you can and being flexible in that regard. Uh, and then some fruits actually can be frozen um, and then. Uh, it can be used in a smoothie or something like that. Other options include health bucks or promotions at local farmers markets, but I know those are regionally specific and not available help everywhere. But like I said, uh, we didn't have any groundbreaking um, insights into this, but uh, uh, any progress in this by patients uh, does have its dividends for health. For sure. And those are really great, impactful tips for a very important topic. So thank you so much. Before we wrap up today, you mentioned in your paper that future research should be focused on expanding the quality of evidence, including the number and size of randomized controlled trials. Are there any research or projects you're working on that you'd like to share with the NFU community? We are working on a few things right now. One of the projects that we're working on is looking at the nutrient content of plant-based yogurts and their phosphorus content. We wanted to look at that because for patients on dialysis, getting enough protein can be a problem. Uh, they have typically have higher protein requirements uh, than uh, patients not on dialysis. So what we wanted to see was um, how much phosphorus was in these yogurts and if uh, there was a uh, a specific plant yogurt or a type of plant yogurt 
that was lower in phosphorus and higher in protein that could be used in our patients. And uh, we published this in a poster and we're working on the paper now. And what we found is that there's actually a lot of variability in the uh, yogurts that are available for sale. Uh, this depends on the, what additives they're adding and what their soy source of protein is. Uh, but uh, we're working on that and we hope to have that out hopefully sometime this year for um, our listeners and uh, viewers to uh, access and read. Awesome. Exciting stuff to come. We covered so much today. Just to recap a, a bit, the risks associated with the modern Western diet. Um, we went over guidance regarding low carb and ketogenic diets. We detailed intermittent fasting and your favorite topic, of course, plant-based diets. And I'm so glad that we were able to highlight the very important topic of food insecurity and some options for any patients who are struggling to put together a kidney-friendly meal. Thank you so much for being here, Dr. Joshi. This chat was so informative. Um, I want all of our listeners to know they can follow you on social media for similar content on Twitter and Instagram. Your handle is sjoshimd. And on your website, uh, www.afternoonrounds.com. I know personally you are one of my favorite Twitter accounts to follow. <laughs> That's kind of you. Thank you for having me. And I love being here. Of course. We love having you as well. And thank you, Nephew community, for tuning in. And remember, you can find all upcoming webinars, podcasts, and events on nephew.org. And our social media platform is at Nephew Community. I look forward to seeing you again here on Nephew. Mm -hmm.